Good to be back together at 8 o'clock. Hopefully everyone's feeling awake or had enough coffee to, to get you there soon, if you haven't. As we've been together this summer, we were making our way, journeying with the people of God through the book of Exodus. And as that journey concluded, now we're beginning into a, another journey, another trek through a book of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians together. And at the, the start of every journey, right, every journey begins somewhere. But there's a certain kind of wisdom in figuring out where you are at the beginning of a journey before you head out to where you think you're going. Right? You have to sort of find your location. One summer many years ago, I was asked to run an orientation program for teachers. They were American college students who were coming to China to teach English for the summer. And so in addition to training them and kind of giving them an orientation in the classroom, I was also asked to help orient them to the city in which we were working and living. So at the time, I was working in this big city called Tianjin. It was about 14 million people. And at the end of our first week of training and teaching, I decided we would go out on a kind of field trip for dinner that night. So I gathered our group of 10 or 12 teachers and put them into smaller groups of three or four. And I hailed several taxis in front of our apartments. And just before they got in the taxi, I blindfolded all of the teachers, put them in the taxi, and I quietly told the taxi driver where we were going. And so we, we headed out about five or six miles into the center of the city. But of course, they didn't see where we were going. They didn't know where we were going. And I managed to get there just before them. And as they came out of the taxis, I took their blindfolds off and I handed them a map of the city in Chinese. And I said, have fun, the evening's yours, just make sure you get home tonight in one piece. And I gave them some money. We had some more experienced teachers with each group just to make sure they were safe. But, but the, the rules of the evening were basically they could take public transit, they could walk, they could speak with people on the road and ask for directions. The one rule is that they couldn't take a taxi back home. That was too easy, right? That was cheating. But the hardest part of that exercise, the part that took the longest uh, amount of time, was locating their initial position on the map. Right? They didn't know where they were. They didn't have any sense of, of orientation. And so they had to go find street signs and landmarks and talk to people. And eventually they could pinpoint where they were at so that they could figure out where they needed to go, where home was on the map. However, by the time everyone had made it home three or four hours later, they had discovered new streets, they'd eaten new foods, they talked with new strangers. And for the most part, they had faced down that initial fear of getting lost in a new place. Most importantly, though, they had learned how to locate themselves, even when they were in an unfamiliar or seemingly hostile environment. And over the rest of that summer, they proved to be a pretty resilient, a pretty confident bunch of travelers. Many of them went out into the city with great frequency, or they went to other cities to explore the country. And again, because they had this sense of place and and orientation, and they could find their way into whatever came upon them. Well, as we begin this letter of the Ephesians this morning, Paul's letter to this group of people, we need our own orientation. 
we need to locate not only who this letter is addressed to, but locate ourselves as the people of God in this letter before we get underway. Ephesians is a masterpiece of of Paul's writing. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright calls Ephesians a a panoramic photograph. He says that that somehow Paul manages to take this, this sweeping horizon, this huge sweep of territory, what it means to be God's people, what it means to be in Christ Jesus, what it means to to pursue discipleship in the church. Somehow he takes all that territory and he fits it into one single awe-inspiring frame, into this one letter. Our task today, though, is at the beginning, at the outset, to take some bearings, to find some of the landmarks in terms of, of where we're beginning so that we can proceed confidently so that we can proceed resiliently into the territory that lies ahead. So if you're up for that task of locating ourselves this morning, then turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll pick up in verse 1 in just a minute. As you're turning there, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you have a vision of where you desire to lead us, of heavenly realities that are present even now in in changing and transforming your people. Lord, you supply us with this deep and rich identity as the people of God. Help us to better understand where we are at this morning in this place, but also where we are at in you. Pray that as we read your word, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You guide us now. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians like this. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace And peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So like any good letter writer, Paul begins here by locating the audience, locating the recipients of this letter for us. And anytime we we want to locate something, we tend to use one particular kind of word, right? We use a preposition. Prepositions communicate to us The position of one thing relative to something else. And as this letter begins, as chapter 1 begins, the first 10 verses we'll look at this morning use one preposition far and away more than any other. In the first 10 verses, Paul uses the word in 13 times. He wants to tell us where we are, what we find ourselves in the middle of, in the midst of. Paul is using this list then and and will be tracking through this list of prepositions, this list of in statements to give ourselves that sense of location, to provide ourselves with a kind of a set of coordinates of where we are at as God's people. So the very first of these occurs right there in the middle of verse 1, where Paul locates the context where this journey, where this letter begins. 
It says it begins with God's holy people in Ephesus. This is the place in which they reside. But what does it mean to be in Ephesus? What, what kind of context is that? Well, let me very briefly give you a sketch of Ephesus in the first century as Paul's writing. Ephesus was a significant seaport. It was on the western coast of Asia Minor. It was a city of great size. It was over 200,000 inhabitants, which placed it probably among the top five cities in the Roman world. And probably more than anything, the city was was famed for uh, who and how it worshipped. There was a temple that was several centuries old in Ephesus built to the goddess Artemis. And, And this temple was by most accounts, the largest physical single structure in the entire world at that point in history. There's this massive structure, again, devoted to the worship of this goddess. We're also told that Ephesus was a city controlled by Rome. It belonged sort of to Caesar, and there was a cult that also worshipped Caesar as lord. So you have people worshipping Artemis, you have people worshipping the lordship of Caesar... In Rome. And we're also told that Ephesus was a place that attracted sorcerers and people practicing magic and and witchcraft and and all sorts of dark arts. It had this great reputation that these people would flock to the city, that they they would do their work there. And so, with all these different styles and and approaches to worship, it, it sounds like a great destination to plant a young church, right? Not exactly, right? There was, there was a significant sense of, of hostility even as Paul begins his ministry there. And yet it tells us in Acts chapter 19 that Ephesus is a place where Paul would spend more than two years of his life and ministry. And Paul, we're told, came into the city. He began to set up shop in the marketplace as a tent maker, doing commerce among the people. But very quickly he went to the synagogue and then from the synagogue to a local lecture hall and began to preach and proclaim the lordship, not of Artemis, not of Caesar, not of these magic dark arts, but the lordship of Jesus Christ in that place. And in doing so, the writer of Acts, Luke, tells us that Paul had to drive out evil spirits in his ministry. Paul performed great and miraculous signs in the city. And over time, as the church began to grow and his ministry began to grow, Paul also earned himself some enemies in Ephesus. And those things came to a head two or two and a half years into his ministry when the makers of the idols in the city, the silversmiths, who who made these statues to be worshipped in the temple, they began to be frustrated with Paul that he was taking business away from them, that he was threatening their enterprise And so they sparked a near riot. They gathered the city into the theater and they began to chant, you know, to drive Paul out and to worship this goddess, Artemis. And so Paul left the city. Some scholars think he was soon imprisoned in Ephesus. We don't know that for sure. But this was a dark time in Paul's ministry, a discouraging time. And yet we read through the New Testament letters and we find that Paul leaves in his wake this series of new believers 
And new churches, not just in Ephesus, but in the region surrounding Ephesus. Paul then is writing this morning to these men and women. People he has lived near or among. Some of them he's known personally, some just by reputation. Most of whom are Gentile believers, but also some Jews that are part of these churches. And as Paul writes to them, he knows that they're located, they're facing hostility. They're facing the very real forces of political and cultural and spiritual opposition in Ephesus. So he writes to them here in verse 1. He says, I'm writing to you the holy people. The selected saints of God who have been called in Ephesus. In this place. In this region. Every journey starts somewhere. For these people, their journey began in Ephesus. For us... Our journey of discipleship begins here, right? We have a unique context. We have a unique soil. We have a unique place in which God has planted us. And our task is to figure out who we are and, and how we proceed as followers of Jesus Christ in those places we begin. Even under circumstances that might not always be favorable or inviting. But Paul takes pains as he goes further in his introduction to stress that this is not the only place the people of God, the saints of God, are located. They're not merely in Ephesus. Because in verse 3 he goes on to say this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So here Paul is writing to a group of people in Ephesus, but he goes on and he adds two more prepositional phrases to help them discover their location. Whenever God gathers a people for himself, whether it's in Ephesus or whether it's in Jericho or whether it's some other far-flung place on the globe, as he calls those people together, Paul says, at the same time he brings those people into ...and under the blessings of heaven. Paul says that these people are now in and subject to... ...blessings in the heavenly realms... ...with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You and I are located here today. But Paul says we also participate... ...we also live in and among a kind of heavenly reality... And notice that that Paul says here in verse 3, this should give us cause for hope. This should be a a cause for for praise and rejoicing. He says at the beginning of verse 3, praise to God our Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is actually the Greek word there. Blessed be the name of God our Father. Paul says we bless God because he has blessed us. He's blessed us in the most powerful way imaginable. He's blessed us by locating the power of heaven, making it available to us here on the earth as God's people. And Paul says those those heavenly realities, those heavenly blessings are conveyed to us because of the last two words in verse 3. Because we are now a people in Christ. 
right? A people in Ephesus or a people in Jericho, but also a people who are being blessed in the heavenly realms, a people who are in Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preaches is that that we have a God who seeks out a people for himself, who goes searching into every sort of broken locale he can find, every place inhabited by, by human brokenness, by idolatry, by sin, marred by whatever other force is there. And God finds people to join to the resurrected power and life of Jesus Christ. Paul says we are being relocated as a people. In a place, but into Christ as well. And we need that relocation because Christ is the only person, he's the only power, he's the only force who spans both heaven and earth. We'll get to that idea at the end of our letter the end of our passage this morning, but, but there's this idea of heavenly reality coming to the earth through Christ. Now, over the course of the past day or week, I don't always feel, maybe you don't always feel as though the, the reality of heaven is, is breaking into your life, is present, that it's infusing your own experience. And we struggle with this. There's a a kind of hiddenness to the power Paul speaks about here. And at times we might wonder, well, what difference does it make to be in Christ? What difference does that make here and now? What difference did it make in Ephesus facing the, the spiritual forces of darkness that Paul speaks about? What difference does it make for me to be in Christ facing whatever darkness and brokenness I wrestle with? Well, as commentator Peter O'Brien suggests of this verse, he says the heavenly gifts Paul describes here are not just some far-off promise. They're not just a future benefit waiting for us in heaven someday. These heavenly gifts are a present reality, he says, given to the church, given to God's holy people who have been called into existence now. And so, in verses 4 through 10, Paul enumerates, he explains to us what these gifts look like. How is it that we are blessed with heavenly blessings in Christ today? Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Paul continues. He says, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul says here that that God finds us where we are at. He locates us in Christ in these heavenly blessings so that we might receive the gift of sonship. So that we might be moved from a place of alienation, a place of isolation, a place of independence, Paul says, into the context of a family of God. And Paul says this isn't just, again, a far-off privilege. This is a privilege we enjoy now. To be holy and blameless in his sight. To be adopted as sons in Jesus Christ. 
To be in Christ and to be participants in the church means we are God's sons and daughters. Verse 4 says that God as our Father has chosen us in Christ before the creation of the world. There's this sense that that God's desire to to have a people, to have a family for himself, predates everything. It, It precedes everything else in all of creation. And so that as God began to create, he began to to predestine, to arrange, to to order everything in creation so that one day a people might be called by his name, called to himself, that he might have a family of sons and daughters. God delights in this concept of sonship. And to help us envision what, what Paul means here by our adoption into sonship, I think we have to understand a little bit about how adoption was commonly practiced in the Roman world. Unlike adoption today, which is often of a young child or an infant, more often in the Roman world this took place for an adolescent or even a young man. And the adoptive family would typically be a family of some means... They had a, you know, a significant inheritance, a significant name and, and reputation within the culture and society they lived in. But if they did not have an heir, they would select a young man. They would choose someone from another family and that person would be brought into their family. They would leave behind one identity and take on a new family name. And then they would become beneficiaries of that family's new inheritance. Paul is saying that like an adoptive father, God is is locating, he's choosing, he's selecting a people for himself, you and I, to be joined into the name, into the identity of Jesus Christ so that we might be his, his true sons, his true daughters. And so that to be in Christ is to be loved as God's very own children. Some of us, though, don't always know what that experience is like. Some of us have lived with deep feelings of abandonment, feelings of rejection, feelings of insecurity. Sometimes those wounds have come at the hands of our own mothers and fathers. Paul says that as we are located in Jesus Christ, we are given this new identity, a new fathership Spiritual writer Henri Nouwen says and confesses that in his own life, too often the world and its demons have conspired to make him think about himself as worthless and useless and negligible. There are those, those voices, those, those voices of darkness that accuse us and that denigrate who we are and our sense of worth. But Paul says that in Christ Jesus, God confronts those voices. In Christ Jesus, God breaks the the heavenly reality into our earthly reality in order to say to us, it is my will, it is my pleasure, it is to my glory to call you beloved sons, beloved daughters. It's God's desire to say, be located in me. Be located in Christ. Paul says is that as we come into that location, into that identity in his family, 
that we begin to understand the, the full inheritance which has been made available to us. Look at verse 7. It says that in Christ, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He has lavished on us. Paul says God's not only moving us into his family, but he's choosing here then to to lavish the riches of Christ, the inheritance of Christ upon us, what Paul calls the riches of his grace. He says that to be in Christ, to be in the family of God, means we're now located in a story of redemption. Now for for you and I, redemption is kind of a, a spiritual church word we use. But in in the Greek culture, in the Hebrew culture, redemption always was used in context with slavery. To be redeemed was to be purchased out of the hand of a slave master. Paul is saying that we have been purchased out of a former past, a former way of life, out of slavery into a new identity. And that in Jesus Christ, God is telling an even greater exodus story than the one Moses and the Hebrew people knew. Because in Christ, God is is bringing his people out. He's leading his people out through the redemption of his own blood. Paul will say he's he's not only able to break the power of Pharaoh or the power of Caesar, but, but every power and principality in this world. Christ is purchasing us, redeeming us from those things. So that as we enter into this new life of redemption... This new life of forgiveness, the power of sin, the power of death is is rendered broken, powerless. And once again, Paul wants us to know that this redemption, being redeemed in Christ, is a reality we're meant to know now. As we walk through this life, Paul says, locate yourself as sons and daughters of God, locate yourself in grace children of his affection and love who enjoy the fullness of his forgiveness the fullness of his freedom that he has purchased you to enjoy Paul says these are your riches these are your inheritance as sons and and they're meant to be on display like the first fruits of of heavenly reality the church is, is meant to live into these things to walk in them with one another. So we are, we're located in Christ in a heavenly reality. We're located in his redemption. We're located in his family. And then finally, Paul says near the end of this, this prayer, that we're located in the incredible lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, With all wisdom and understanding... God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Again, imagine hearing this as, as, a, as a Gentile man or woman living in Ephesus... Paul is saying that everything, absolutely everything, is coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
That to be in Christ means our lives are, are being woven and, and reordered into this glorious mystery. That somehow Christ will be supreme, will, will reign over all things. Paul writes this to people located in cities devoted to the worship of Artemis. Devoted to the worship and power of Caesar. Devoted to the powers of darkness. Paul says to them, there is a power at work in you now that far outstrips, that far outweighs any power you've seen displayed. Paul says you are being brought into, you're being located in the heavenly reign, the cosmic reign of Jesus Christ. And again, Paul says that lordship spans heaven and earth. It connects those two realities. Paul will go on to say here in verse 10. Oh, my my font didn't translate here. He says that in Christ, it's this great, big, long Greek word. In Christ, God is anakaphalaios astastai. I can't even, ask Dom later to pronounce it for you. Anakaphalaios astai. God is bringing everything into unity. He is summing up. He is, he is reimagining, reordering these, these many and diverse powers and things and cultures and peoples into one new thing. The people of God. Enjoying the reign and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And there's a sense that only God has, has the wisdom and knowledge to truly understand the full breadth of this mystery. But, it, but it's being unveiled, it's, it's being made known, it's being proclaimed even now to the people of God, Paul says. That's his ministry, that's the message of the gospel. To bring all things together under his lordship. And so, in a world of competing powers, competing ideologies, the lordship of Jesus Christ aims to, to bring us into this one new identity. To be located in Christ is to have our lives reordered. To have our lives summed up by his lordship. It's to recognize that we're people planted here, but we're also accessing, we're living in a heavenly reality. We're living in the reality of Jesus Christ himself. We're living into his sonship. We're living into his redemption at work in us. We're living into the the revelation of his lordship. And so as we start into Ephesians this week, as you begin to read that letter, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, are these things where I locate myself? Are these the voices that speak to me? Do I know what it means to, to exist in, to walk in these heavenly blessings and, and to begin to pray them as prayers for your own heart and pray them as prayers for the church here in Jericho. Would you pray with me now? Lord, would you affix this identity? Would you locate it in the center of who we are? Not just as individuals, but as a church, as a called out people of God in this place. May the reality of who you are in all your heavenly power, in all your spiritual blessings, may we begin to walk out those things here as as the living people of God on the earth, in this place. 
We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.